Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moira McLean, taking you through Thursday stories. And with me is the wonderful Sean Fay. Hi, Moira. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> I want you in every week. You know that I'm pushing for that. Um, and in today's stories, we will be talking about the brand new climate strategy that's been announced by the government and denounced by just about every climate campaigner going. The sad case of Chris Carber has been referred to the CPS by the IOPC. More analysis on that later. And the policy exchange, Michael Goh's pet think tank, has released a new bombastic anti-trans report. We'll be going through that. Uh, polling also shows that UK tenants are afraid to ask for repairs. I will be talking about that at length from what I like to call lived experience. And to finish off, Elon Musk is sounding the AI alarm. On to our first story. The government has unveiled its new climate strategy. The report, called Powering Up Britain, runs to over a thousand pages in total and yet contains very few new ideas and no new commitments to government spending. Minister for Energy Security and Net Zero, Graham Stewart, announced the plan in Parliament. As part of Powering Up Britain, the government is launching Great British Nuclear to put clean nuclear power at the heart of Britain's energy security and spearhead a busy programme of new nuclear projects, starting with a competitive down selection this year to choose the best small modular reactor technologies. Launching the floating offshore wind manufacturing investment scheme, providing up to £160 million to kickstart funding in port infrastructure so we can move forward with that exciting new technology. And publishing plans for investing in carbon capture and storage, a key area for cleaning up energy and one where Britain can lead the world. To drive our hydrogen ambitions, we are also announcing a shortlist and funding for the first round of electrolytic hydrogen allocation, with a second round to come, and setting out our longer-term hydrogen plans. We're providing an extra £1 billion for energy efficiency upgrades through the new Great British Insulation Scheme. And we're investing, and we're investing, to, sp we're investing to speed up the market for heat pump installation to decarbonise home heating and leverage up to £300 million of overall funding, including private funding. This country is already ahead of the game when it comes to decarbonising its economy. We're a global leader in offshore wind power and currently have the world's largest operational offshore wind farm project, named after a town in my constituency, Hornsea 2. But we also have, Mr Deputy Speaker, the second, the third and the fourth largest offshore wind farms as well. But the measures we're unveiling today will accelerate our transition, rolling out existing technologies and bringing transformative new technologies to market. One big announcement there was the UK's plan to invest in a carbon capture site in Teesside. The technology would allow the carbon dioxide produced by burning fossil fuels to be removed from the atmosphere. The gas would then be stored in caverns deep under the North Sea, where Triton lives. But environmental campaigners are concerned that the government, far from radically reducing fossil fuel reliance by 2050, are instead placing a new bet on technology to allow the UK to continue its reliance on oil and gas. Kevin Anderson is Professor of Energy and Climate at Manchester University, and he told The Guardian this. 
When it comes to energy emissions, the claimed prospect of CCS continues its long-established role in supporting the development of the oil and gas industry and in further delaying real cuts in emissions, Given the huge cost, very high life cycle emissions and appalling record of working as promised, there is little, if any, merit in pursuing CCS as a major plank of UK strategy. Damning words. Earlier this month, Jeremy Hunt, however, announced a £20 billion investment in climate capture and other low carbon energy projects. But that is spread out over two decades. And it's clear from the plan that the government is relying heavily on the private sector to make up the shortfill. But the announcement also comes in the context of a recent pledge by American President Joe Biden to invest $370 billion in a green plan for the USA, including subsidies for private investors in green technologies. And now that's led to criticism that the government hasn't even gone far enough to compete with America and the EU in terms of attracting money from the private sector. And Mossat, Executive Director of Renewable UK, said this. We need much more than a business-as-usual approach to kickstart investment on the level we need to boost energy security, cut consumer bills, and reach net zero. Without that, we won't land the UK-wide economic benefits of building up new clean energy supply chains as they will go elsewhere where the investment environment is more conducive and attractive. Isn't it funny we have to only talk about the economic benefit and not just you know, saving the planet in order to get these things across. But just as disappointing as what's in this new green strategy plan is what isn't, with the government leaving out several existing technologies that would help us achieve our climate commitments. Caroline Lucas, Westminster's only Green Party MP, gave her assessment of what's missing. There are no new financial commitments as far as we can see in the plan that has been announced this morning. Indeed, the only green thing about this plan is the fact that it's been recycled. It's full of recycled pledges, sometimes from, from years ago. So I think the kind of things that we were hoping to see there, which would have been, for example, the resources for a mass home insulation scheme, street by street, led by local authorities, or, for example, the unblocking of onshore wind, which is the cheapest form of energy, or, for example, having mandatory solar on all new suitable homes. Those are the kinds of policies that could have certainly got us to where we need to be when it comes to our climate reduction targets. Instead, we've got a government relying on reheated ideas, unproven technologies, um, and simply, in even in their own figures, it looks like they're not going to be able to meet the targets that they've been set. The government isn't even producing this under their own steam, as it were. It's under duress. It's in response to a High Court ruling last year. And the court found, following a case brought by environmental activists, that the government policies at the time would not have been enough to reach the UK's legally binding 2050 net zero commitments. That means that the government may find itself in court again if experts decide that the plan doesn't go far enough. Now, despite assurances of their commitment to a carbon-free economy, the government is also currently in the middle of a new licensing round for North Sea oil and gas extraction. Last year's huge profits for oil and gas giants have also led them to proposing new developments, after Chancellor Jeremy Hunt provided tax breaks on fossil fuel investment under the windfall tax. One of them, Rosebank, would be a massive new field, enjoying a tax break to the tune of nearly four billion. Why is it that new developments always call things like Rosebank, which is the name to me of a bungalow in Oxfordshire, not a giant new oil field in the middle of the Shetland Sea? So is this a case of actions speaking louder than words? 
Earlier today, I spoke to Tessa Khan, founder and executive director of Uplift, an organization advocating for a just and rapid transition to a fossil fuel-free UK. And I began by asking her how much faith she has in the government's climate plan. I don't have any faith at all, in short. Um, What we got from the government after a lot of hype um, was really a set of policies and consultations that are half-baked and really didn't illustrate any new ambition in terms of money um, or scale, which is exactly what we need right now if we're going to stay within a livable climate. Even if the government did everything they pledged to do in this plan, how likely would we be to reach net zero by 2050? Well, we wouldn't be on track to meet net zero by 2050. And I think, you know, we should also acknowledge that that in itself isn't a sufficiently ambitious target for a country that's as rich as the UK. Um, There are a number of reasons for that. First, the initial indications are that the government's own analysis is that its plans won't be sufficient to meet the milestones that it set for itself on the way to net zero for 2050. The other thing is that we know that the government's planning to approve outrageous new oil and gas projects in the UK, like the Rosebank oil field, which is the largest undeveloped oil field in the UK. Uh, It would lead to emissions that are equivalent to running 56 coal-fired power stations for a year. Um, And we've heard repeatedly from climate scientists and experts that there's no room for any new oil and gas developments if we're going to stay within a critical threshold for the climate, which is 1.5 degrees of warming. So it's just not credible to think that with what the government's put on the table, um, that we're going to meet those targets. What do these latest plans say about the government's reliance on nuclear and carbon capture technology? Well, the government's made it clear that it wants to keep betting on those technologies. So it's put billions of pounds aside to support the development of carbon capture and storage technology, which is untested at scale um, and that's it. dozens of scientists in the UK have have said recently that we don't know that this technology can actually deliver and what it does do is create real moral hazard in terms of encouraging the fossil fuel industry to keep extracting more oil and gas um, with the promise that somehow we'll be able to capture the emissions that they create in the future. And that's really dangerous when actually we know what the things are that we need to do right now to reduce emissions like, for example, um, increasing our reliance on renewable energy, and the government isn't taking those steps. Instead, it's betting on this untested, um, largely unproven technology in the hope that it will make things better in the future. Why do you think the political will to tackle the climate crisis is so weak from the UK government? We know what we should be doing. All the answers have been there for ages. Why is it not happening? Why do they keep going back to these, oh, but if we keep doing fossil fuels, then at least we'll capture all the carbon, it's going to be fine. Well, I think the answer is clear if you look at the fact that the UK is the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe. We've got an incredibly powerful oil and gas lobby uh, that has friends in government, that provides donations to government. There's a revolving door between the industry and the regulators that um, are in charge of regulating these industries. So it's a government that's in a lot of ways captured by the oil and gas industry, and that's why it continues to send signals and make decisions that are completely inconsistent with what it itself acknowledges is necessary to deal with the climate crisis. But I think, you know, the good news is that this is a lobby that 
we can defeat. It's been defeated in the past. There was a huge outcry over the development of the Cambo oil field, for example, in 2021. Um, and that led to Shell, the oil and gas company that was proposing to develop it, withdrawing it and the government not approving it. So it is the case that if we really stand these sorts of developments up for scrutiny and talk about what they actually involve, the level of outrage and opposition is enough to ultimately dwarf and defeat that incredibly powerful industry. What is the next step for climate campaigners in the face of this new green disappointing strategy? Well, I think we have to keep hammering um, the solutions that, as I said, we know are necessary, that are affordable, that will bring people's energy bills down and that will address the climate crisis. So we've got to make sure that the government unblocks renewable energy development. We currently have a de facto ban on onshore wind in the UK, which is ridiculous um, and it's popular. So that's the first step that doesn't come in anything uh, to do that it could do. We need to make sure that we're upgrading homes across the country in terms of insulating people's homes so that we're not uh, leaking heat and energy out of our doors and windows. And that ultimately is something that the most vulnerable in our society pay the highest price for in terms of fuel poverty and the health and social implications of that. Um, and we've got to keep calling for the government to stop listening to the oil and gas industry, tax them properly, don't allow them to open up new developments that lock us into dependency on oil and gas for decades to come in developments that ultimately involve huge billions of pounds of subsidies to those oil and gas companies that are currently experiencing record profits and do nothing for anyone's interests other than oil and gas company execs. Now, the government may not care much about climate action, but it sure loves climate distraction, Hollywood style. Energy Secretary Grant Shapps lined up the Powering Up Britain announcement by releasing this blockbuster trailer. From defending our shores and protecting our overseas interests, our nation's security has always been our top priority. Today, with Putin weaponizing energy across Europe, our energy security has never been more critical. And driving down your energy bill sits at the heart of our plan. Over the winter, the government stepped up and paid about a half of the typical household energy bill. But this plan today to power up Britain will protect our energy security for good. Since 2010, we've invested 200 billion pounds in renewable energy. Today's plan invests billions more. Together, we will power up Britain from Britain to force down your energy bills and ensure we can never be held to energy ransom again. Who directed that, I wonder? My money's on Joe Wright. And was that a wood-panelled bunker? It's triggering my nuclear energy anxieties. Let's move swiftly on. In September 2022, there was widespread shock and grief when 24-year-old Chris Cabber was shot and killed by the Metropolitan Police in South London. The vehicle he had been driving had been flagged as being linked to a previous firearms incident, although it was later found not to be connected to him. Now, the expectant father was pursued by an unmarked police car with no lights or sirens, and when Cabber drove down a road, he was blocked in by a marked police car. An officer then fired a single shot through the windscreen of Chris Cabber's vehicle. He was taken to hospital, but he died shortly afterwards, and as I said, it later emerged the vehicle did not belong to Cabba, and no non-police firearms were recovered from the scene, aka he was unarmed. 
Since Chris Cabba's death, his family have been campaigning for answers and justice. They've criticised the Met for the length of time it took to suspend the officer who shot Chris, and they've called for criminal charges to be brought against that officer. And now there is some movement on the part of the authorities. The police watchdog, the Independent Office for Police Conduct, announced today that they would be referring Chris Cabba's case to the Crown Prosecution Service. This is the announcement spokesperson Amanda Rowe made earlier. Today we've referred a file of evidence to the Crown Prosecution Service following the conclusion of our homicide investigation into the fatal shooting of Chris Cabba by a Metropolitan Police Service officer on the 5th of September 2022 in Streatham Hill, South London. This was a tragic incident and our investigators have been working hard to ensure our comprehensive investigation has been completed without undue delay and within the six to nine month time frame that we have committed. Chris Cabba died after he was struck by a single gunshot fired by a Metropolitan Police Service officer into the vehicle he was driving. During the investigation, the officer was advised that they were under criminal investigation for murder and following the conclusion of our investigation, we have referred a file of evidence to the Crown Prosecution Service to determine whether to charge the officer. A referral to the Crown Prosecution Service does not necessarily mean criminal charges will follow. It is now for the Crown Prosecution Service to decide applying the code for Crown Prosecutors whether or not to prosecute the officer. As Rose states there, a referral to the CPS doesn't necessarily mean that criminal charges for murder will be brought. It is now up to the CPS to decide whether to charge the officer for murder, use another charge instead, or drop the case altogether. And earlier today, I spoke to a friend of the show, Maurice McLeod, and I began by asking him whether recent revelations about the Metropolitan Police may have informed the swiftness of the IOPC's decision. In a word, yes. I think that there's an immense amount of um, scrutiny on the Metropolitan Police in particular at the moment. But but I actually think that that this decision by the IOPC, which is... You know, it's still quite a rare thing for them to even uh, even get this far. Um, I think it's down to the, the pressure that's been put on by the family and their supporters, you know, by, by, by all the groups that, that have been right there behind the family since, you know, since last September when this happened. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. What has that pressure looked like from the family? Well, well first, first off, they've been incredibly dignified um i was at uh, one of the demos i stewarded one of the demos um uh in the weeks after his death um uh um that, that ended up outside um scotland yard a new scotland yard and and the sort of the family spoke there and you could you could feel the grief it was so palpable um and and for all of us i think that that were there um and it was you know there, there, it was a really it was a somber day anyway because i think it, it was it was i think on the, the day that queen was being buried or something so it was or it was in that period um but the the the, the real sense not of, not of anger but of of grief that that we all had that that everyone in that that uh, um that vigil had i feel like that's what's carried that's what's carried over and 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 there's been organisations supporting them, like Sister Space and 
uh, an inquest and all sorts of uh, organizations have really sort of come out and 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 sort of stood right there beside the family um uh, uh you know mps bell bell Ribeiro, has been wonderful as ever um making sure that this doesn't um sort of just go away um but even with all that pressure we still it's still taken seven months to get to to get to this bit it's taken seven months after you know a young black man has been shot in the streets and unarmed black man was shot dead in the streets and it's taken seven months to even work out whether they think someone might be worthy of being uh, investigated it's it's you know criminally um you know justice delayed is justice denied and the family really do need this to happen quickly now they need the cps need to make their decision quickly Maurice, if the CPS decides to bring criminal charges in this case, do you think there will be a spotlight placed upon it by the media and public alike? Two years ago, it was really striking when Dalian Atkinson's killer, Benjamin Monk, was convicted of manslaughter, that there was such a silence almost among media. There was tiny bit of coverage, but not much at all. And this was the first time in 30 years that a British police officer had been convicted for a death during the course of their duties. Huge case, very quiet. Will we see the same here? Undoubtedly, there will, there will be spotlight on, on this case if, if this goes to trial. I think that um, there's, a, there's a real demand for, for justice here. Not that there wasn't in the other cases, there absolutely was. I just don't think the media are able to, to sort of, will be able to turn away uh, in the way that they did. Uh, with 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 um, with Daniel's case and, and other cases, to be honest, as you say, this year for for that not to get much coverage, we're talking about a former Aston Villa footballer, you know, Premier League footballer, uh, um, being being killed and uh, being killed by uh, you know, and 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 a police officer being found guilty, uh, you know, of that death, and it's sort of. People went, oh, okay, and, and moved on. It, it really, really, really surprising. I feel like um, the Sarah Everard case and the, the attention that's on the Mets and the Casey review um, and and the, the impact of, of, of the Black Lives Matter uprising means that, that this case is it's kind of all eyes on. I think the community has been incredibly patient. I think the fact that, you know, they've taken their lead from the family and we've been incredibly patient. Um, but th- there's a real first for, for justice in this case. And I don't, I don't think um, it's going to drop out of the news anytime soon. We know the family obviously asking for criminal charges to be brought. That is what they have demanded from the very beginning. If that doesn't happen, what are we looking at here? Further campaigns? Where do we go? It almost feels like this dead end. Or do you think it is likely the CPS will bring criminal charges against the officer in question? I don't like to manifest negativity, so I'm not going to imagine what happens. Uh, you know, if 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 this doesn't, you know, end up as a as a criminal charge, um, I'd like to think that for all the reasons I've just stated, all the pressure that's on at the moment, all the attention that's on uh, um, uh, both policing and 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 our, and our legal system in general, that that you know, this has seen as a, as at least this has seen as a case where they need to do the right thing. And I think the right thing would be for this to go to trial. Um, I, I think that anything other than that will feel 
like a massive um, uh, betrayal. It will feel as if uh, when the anger was there, people believed that the lines about, okay, we're going to do this properly and everything's going to go through at the right pace, uh, and, and then for it to just go away, I think that would be quite a hard thing to take. We've talked a lot about justice in this interview. It does justice lie within the criminal justice system as we know it, because on the one hand, you've got the police. They're meant to be the front line of justice in this country. You've got the CPS, who, as we know, are currently in crisis due to both a massive shortage of operators, but also the systems that are working at the moment. And you've got the IPC, which is meant to provide justice to people who have found themselves on the wrong end of policing. Do these things add up to justice as we know? Or when we talk about justice right now, we're we talking within the current framework and the limitations that brings with it. Evidently, these things don't add up to, add up to justice. You know, evidently, the, the, the fact that there are over 23,000 uh, um, charges or, or complaints brought, brought against uh, police in 20, 2020 to 2021, 18 of them turned into a reprimand, or, uh, you know, 18. That's uh, there. There is there's no accountability um, uh, here. When we talk about, um, I mean, we at, at unjust, the, you know, uh, the organisation I work with, uh, which is about fighting structural racism in the criminal justice system, uh, criminal legal system. You know that that's the yeah, that's the the, the correct um, uh, way to describe it is the legal system because you know. To be honest, our communities don't see justice and they've never really seen justice in the system we've got at the moment. The only way to ever uh, um, get to, a, to a, a true criminal justice system, I think, is, is, is completely reimagining and starting from the ground up. The current landscape is that we, you know, we have uh, um, uh, the IOPC, which has gone through a number of iterations over the years and, and, and is supposed to be uh, independent, but um, you know, I can't say much about its independence. But you know, look, look who makes it up. It's it's okay. So it's no, it's no longer serving police um, necessarily sit on it, but it's a lot of ex policemen who are or police officers who are all still, you know, very connected to you know to the industry. And, and most of the most of the uh, um, cases aren't actually investigated by the IOPC. They're investigated by police police forces themselves. The IOPC only looks at you know the very the most serious cases when 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 a police officer has, has killed someone basically or something of that nature. So so most of the most cases are being you know the police are policing themselves. Um, anyone would know that that doesn't work. That and that's not talking about any individual officer or any individual police force, but anyone would know that that is a system that's set up to fail. That's a system where people are rewarded for not seeing the things that they should see or not acting in the way that they know they should act. Um, you know, you, this isn't a case of reform. This is, this is a complete reimagining. Another day, another moral panic. And once again, it's schools that are coming under scrutiny for supposedly corrupting the nation's children. The right-wing think tank 
Policy Exchange, Michael Gove's brainchild, has today released a report on trans kids at Britain's school. It's part of their new project named Biology Matters, which, quote, aims to document the development and impact of policies based on gender identity theory. This latest report is called Asleep at the Wheel, an examination of gender safeguarding. It's written by someone called Lottie Moore, and it has a foreword by one of the leaders of the Biology Matters project, Labour MP Rosie Duffield. Duffield writes this. The number of children presenting with gender distress has increased dramatically over the last five years, in part because of extreme ideological ideas that are being promoted in schools. Children as young as five are being encouraged to question their gender identity or being taught they have been born in the wrong body if they do not conform to regressive gender stereotypes. In this report, Policy Exchange reveals that a generation of children are being let down because well-established self-safeguarding standards are being compromised. Before we get into the report further, mired in the muck, as it were, I want to point something out, which is that Duffield mentions that children as young as five are being encouraged to question their gender identity. That claim is completely unattributed and it doesn't occur anywhere else in the report. In fact, the report is based on freedom of information requests made to 300 secondary schools across England, which, if I remember correctly, do not seem to teach children aged five. So, Talking about, quote, a generation of children being let down is pretty misleading, to say the least. Duffield goes on to say this. Despite their legal obligations to be politically impartial, beliefs about gender identity have become embedded within the curriculum as though they are facts. With so many schools teaching children that potentially transient feelings about their gender are more determinative of their identity than their chromosomal DNA, it's unsurprising that so many present with distress that they're developing bodies. Gosh, chromosomal DNA. Do these people listen to themselves? Are facts about gender identity political beliefs? And why are they so confident that the feelings of adolescent students are transient? But what really grinds the gears of the authors of the report is that schools aren't immediately reporting teenagers' disclosures about their gender to parents. Lottie Moore, who authored the report, appeared on Talk TV. If there are parents watching this morning or listening this morning, maybe they're actually on the school run bringing their kids to school, what is actually happening in our schools? Yeah, so it is really concerning. And actually, our research found that this is not just one school or a small number of schools, but this is systemic. So... You, you know, 28% um, of the schools that we sent FOI requests to asking for their policies on, on sex and gender and how they deal with gender distressed children, 28% of those schools are not reliably, um, only, sorry, only 28% of those schools are reliably informing parents when a child discloses gender distress. So which gender is distress, a, just to be just to make this clear, this is just very much if it's a boy thinks they're a girl or a girl thinks they're a boy or, or just some some sort of thing that goes away from the sex that they were, were born with, that they are thinking uh, they're confused about their gender identity essentially. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, a kind of form of body dysmorphia where a child expresses discomfort with their sex body and expresses the wish to change gender. So whether they're a, a teenage boy that thinks that they might be a girl and they disclose that feeling to a teacher at school, 
a standard safeguarding protocol, which would be the case with any other kind of mental health concern, would be, unless there is a good safeguarding reason not to, that those parents should be informed when, when a safeguarding so issue arises. parents not being informed? Because this, is, this should be, you would think... Uh, you talk about safeguarding, and, and this is this is all to do with all sorts of problems with children, whether they're being radicalised, whether they're being brought into a gang. If 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 teachers and other professionals in schools or people who aren't teachers as well have concerns, there there are protocols to follow. But is is it a lack of guidance, or or what is the reason here? Is it woke teachers? What's going on? Yeah, so I think it's really important to show you know. I think parents and schools and teachers are united in wanting the best for children. There seems to be, because of the recency of this phenomenon, I mean, this is only really the last five years, the number of children that have been presenting with this issue has skyrocketed. And it's been schools that have been sort of left to deal with this influx of identity. So let's get this straight. 28% of schools are informing parents when a child, again, in a secondary school, reveals that they have questions about their gender. You know, let's let's go see what actual government issue guidance on safeguarding says about when parents exactly should be informed about safeguarding issues concerning their kids. This is from the Department of Education's Keeping Children Safe in School 2022 briefing. Where there is a safeguarding concern, governing bodies, proprietors and school or college leaders should ensure the child's wishes and feelings are taken into account when determining what action to take and what services to provide. In other words, schools are bound to ask children, particularly secondary school children, whether they want their parents to be informed about a safeguarding concern. And if 28% of schools are informing parents about a student's gender identity, or even thoughts a student has about their gender identity, the crime, the thought crime, um, without that student's consent, then aren't 28% of schools actually in violation of the statutory safeguarding guidance. Now that is a scandal. But is being LGBTQ a safeguarding, or as Lottie Moore puts it, mental health issue? The statutory guidance goes on. The fact that a child or young person may be LGBT is not in itself an inherent risk factor for harm. However, children who are LGBT can be targeted by other children. In some cases, a child who is perceived by other children to be LGBT, whether they are or not, can be just as vulnerable as children who identify as LGBT. Risks can be compounded where children who are LGBT lack a trusted adult with whom they can be open. It is therefore vital that staff endeavour to reduce the additional barriers faced and provide a safe space for them to speak out or share their concerns with members of staff. Just repeat that. Being LGBTQ is not itself a risk factor for harm. Risks, though, can be compounded when the students can't trust the adults around them. But what does the policy exchange report say? This. As with every other mental health issue, parents should be informed if a child discloses gender distress at school, even if a child would rather their parents did not know. Given the fact that so many schools are failing to recognise the medical nature of gender distress and affirmative practice, many schools are not automatically informing parents when this issue arises. So policy exchange there, glibly labelling those kind of questions about gender a, quote, mental health concern. And the reason for that is that mental health concerns are a safeguarding issue, which means there could be interference. So how does the report justify this connection like this? 
there is a strong link between poor mental health and gender distress, which will be expanded on later. Keeping Children Safe in Education outlines specifically how teachers should deal with a child's mental health problem. A link is not enough to assert that being trans is a mental health concern. And presumably, there is a correlation perhaps between being trans and poor mental health because we live in a very transphobic society where reports like the one the Policy Exchange puts out are trying their very, very best to make it as hard as possible for anyone who is questioning their gender identity, especially if they are an adolescent. Sean. You've done a lot of research in this area. You've written a very groundbreaking book on it, in fact. What do you make of this policy exchange report and these claims around mental health, meaning that people can interfere with trans children and talk to their parents about their gender distress? I mean, what really struck me there in the clip of Lottie Moore on um, television was, and this should instantly disqualifies her for me for having any qualification on this, uh, to speak on this matter at all, is that she was speaking with regards to trans children and she referred to uh, body dysmorphia. Dysmorphia and dysphoria are very different things, just to explain like briefly, dysmorphia is a belief that like when you look in the mirror and see your body, you see something that doesn't, that isn't the case. For example, you might perceive yourself to um, be much larger in size than you are, and you might actually be medically underweight, but you have that perception that is not grounded in reality. That is body dysmorphia. Gender dysphoria, you're very much aware of what the what your body looks like when you look in the mirror. It is the fact that you perceive a mismatch between how you would like to be perceived socially in your gender and the reality of your body and how people perceive it in terms of gender, you know, regarding how you were assigned a sex at birth. So these are two very different words. Sound similar, but very, very different concepts. And one is a mental illness uh, and requires a degree of support. The other thing to say is um, that, yeah, that uh, there's a sort of like deliberate, um, I don't know, like mendacious approach to the mental distress of trans young people in, in this current moral panic, in which uh, the fact that things like fear of family rejection, schools often not um, honouring someone's identity and, of course, bullying, um, can cause significant mental distress. And then when trans young people are showing signs of mental distress, that is conflated with their gender identity um, and used to pathologize them in this way. Um, so I think that's what strikes me the most. The other thing I think it's worth saying about this report is that it's deliberately very alarmist. Asleep at the wheel is a, is a if you think through that metaphor, that the end result uh, it is a crash uh, and what the end result is, is more trans young people feeling able to come out and be respected in their school. I think it, it gives you an indication of the ideological stance of the people um, who are writing and publishing these, this such a report. The other thing is, is that I think another sort of like misuse of language is safeguarding. Uh, and I say that just not as a trans person, but as someone that like comes from a family. I'm the only person basically in my family. My mum and sister are child protection social workers. I'm very aware of what child safeguarding is and what is its intentions are. And I think it's worth saying that I think what in the current anti-LGBTQ panic we are seeing is this misuse of the term safeguarding 
um, to consistently imply that um, young children who may be LGBTQ plus need, and particularly who may be trans, need protecting from quote unquote ideology. Um, the reality is, is that we know that um, unfortunately for a lot of LGBTQ plus children, the safeguarding they need is from cisgender heterosexual people. In some cases, it might be their own parents. In some cases, it might be staff in um, schools that they're at. Uh, I can say that as a as a trans person that went to school in the early 2000s is that unfortunately some of the worst uh, homophobia and I guess femphobia to me as a sort of feminine presenting child was came from staff, not just from my peers, unfortunately. And that's, I think, a really good point that you picked up on with the safeguarding, because we're also seeing this elsewhere in government strategy, for example, with the anti-gang strategy. The idea of safeguarding is being used to penalise vulnerable young people, not protect them, even while it's talking about the two sides of the mouth, even while saying at the same time, this is to keep you safe. So we're going to further criminalise you. Um, and we'll see further examples of that, I fear, as the Antisocial Behaviour Action Plan takes root. But of course, just because a report is total BS doesn't mean that the right-wing press won't lap it up. In fact, it seems to make it more likely. This was the front page of the Daily Mail this morning. Children put at risk by gender ideology in school. Here's the headline from the Times. Schools let pupils switch gender without informing parents. And they even ran an opinion piece by Rosie Duffield themselves. Rosie Duffield, schools are failing in their duty to protect gender distressed children. I wonder which advisor had to write that. Sean, why is the British media so obsessed with trans kids? Well, I mean, I wrote a whole book on it, so I, <laughs> so I can't, um, I, I'll try and neatly synthesize some thoughts. Um, I mean, I think this issue, um, the issue of trans people in, in British political and media life, I think the first thing to say is that I think it's not the country that is obsessed with this. I think it is a certain cohort in the media and it now in politics. Um, that has disproportionate influence and amplification um, because of social media, be because of Twitter specifically, because of um, certain powerful press interests and certain columnists. This has now become part of the national political agenda. We're seeing the fact that it is mind boggling even to me that Keir Starmer has received advice from Labour strategists that he needs to potentially change his stance, a previously more favourable stance, not great, but more favourable stance on gender recognition um, if he hopes to to win the gen next general election. The fact that a population, you know, less than 1% of the population um, is having such effect uh, in this kind of culture warm manner uh, on political discourse in the country is baffling to me as a trans woman. Even I don't care that much. Even I don't care, and I am one. All my friends are trans, and I don't care that much about trans people. <laughs> um, I think it is, uh, it's been pushed for a long time as a useful form. Yes, it's a distraction, I'm sure. It is a distraction from the Tories' failings. It's an alien government in the same way that migrants on small boats are a useful scapegoat the Tories have realised. But at the same time, too, I think it's worth saying it's not just solely a distraction, is that there has been a deliberate, committed um, 
I don't know, uh, engendering of often quite visceral disgust directed towards trans people, particularly trans women in the UK media for a long time. And uh, I think we're seeing that bear fruit now. And with regards to trans young people, you are specifically about why it's trans kids that we seem to be so obsessed with. Um, Laverne Cox, the American actress, has talked about this extensively with this sort of um, the anti trans legislation in the US, which is often about banning affirmative health care in Republican states, is that it's not just about kids when they say it's about kids, is that it's a deliberate sort of exterminationist um, approach towards trans life full stop, is that ideologically these people don't really believe that trans people exist beyond being a sort of handful of un mentally unwell adults. And so they want to kind of stem the tide um, by um, seemingly interfering with, uh, I don't know, the, the sort of natural process of coming out that trans young people will do in the same way that in the 80s and 90s, we saw a lot of repressive. There were, it was initial, initially, uh, and especially some Labour-led councils, a very progressive approach or a more progressive approach to um, being open about sexuality and gay and lesbian kids. And again, a moral panic lesbian teachers are taking girls out of class for lessons in lesbianism. These were headlines that I found when I was researching my book from the 80s and even the early 90s. We just lost Sean for a moment, but if you would like to read more analysis from her, then she is the author of The Transgender Issue, a best-selling book which looks at the current landscape for trans people in the UK at the moment. And I also would highly recommend if you want to look at the historical roots of panics around LGBTQ people, an old BBC documentary called It's Not Unusual, which centres the lived experience of queer people throughout the 20th century. Things seem to get harder and harder for renters. Rents have gone up by astronomical amounts in many parts of the country following interest rate rises and an entrenched housing shortage. And the government has still failed to strengthen the tenant protections it promised in its 2019 manifesto. But at the same time, as part of its antisocial behaviour plan, the government wants to make it even easier to evict you. Now, new research from housing charity Shelter reveals that tenants' woes are worsening, and this time it involves repairs. Shelter reports this. Shockingly, a quarter of private renters, 25%, which is just over 2 million people, have not asked their landlord for repairs to be carried out or conditions improved for fear of being evicted. Those fears seem pretty well-founded because Shelter also goes on to report this. Private renters who complained to their landlord, letting agent or local council in the last three years were two and a half times, that's 159%, more likely to be handed an eviction notice than those who had not complained, new research from Shelter reveals. School teacher Chiara lived with her husband Ben and three-year-old child in a rented flat in East London. She told Shelter this. Last Christmas Eve, we received a 25% increase in rent, despite us living with long-term damp and mould. I complained, and in the new year, the landlord responded with Section 21 eviction notice, saying they didn't accept any responsibility for the disrepair or damage. Even before the Section 21, we'd spend a lot of time at the library, church or cafes just so we didn't have to worry about Maggie being in the damp and cold. I was up all night looking online for properties, but it's really hard out there. Rents have massively gone up. People are so desperate they'll consider taking a flat that's mouldy or in disrepair just because there's nothing else. That is 
dreadful to think about, but also Section 21 notices that the government promised it was banning in 2019, yet it still has not. And as we've pointed out in the antisocial behaviour plan, instead they're bringing the ability to evict people within two, two weeks if they're found guilty of damages, okay, but how can they prove that the tenants cause damages? If they're found to play loud music, if they're found with drugs, if they're found simply to be too annoying. I actually despair, I really do. I wish Michael was here right now as well because I know he despairs too. Sean, before we get into it, what's been your worst renting experience? <laughs> well, I'm fighting for my life with this broadband connection this evening, Moya. But I, I, I would say it has to be. I mean, just the classic. Um, I think you know, boiler goes in the middle of winter, and I didn't wash my hair for about two weeks because it was freezing cold. Yeah, that's actually brought back memories. I think thinking back to you know, even a year ago, we were too scared to ask our decent landlord for any repairs because we thought if we push them a little bit too hard they'll stop being decent and kick us out and then before that there was the landlord where they just didn't fix the boiler and kept threatening us with eviction constantly and there was mold all over the bathroom and when we asked them to come in and fix it what they did instead was send someone from next door to paint over it and then they put our rent up by 20 percent, and that was even before the 2020 to 2022 increases one of the things I see quite a lot, even among young people who seem opposed to private landlordism, is sort of helplessness. Because when they get to the point where, you know, previously they might want to rent or they are actually forced to put their principles where their money is, the money always wins. The fear and the scarcity mentality that dominates this country means that people who, you know, five years ago have been like, I don't want to ever become a landlord, says, well, it's the only thing I can do. I have to get an asset because the country insists I do, I have to make myself first, say first. And then before you know it, you find yourself, you know, I want to go somewhere else and get a job somewhere else in a different city, maybe abroad. Uh, I don't want to lose my asset. And then they start renting out the house and suddenly you're a millennial landlord. And the rest of us, you can't afford it. Well, we just stay renting out forever. Um, so I do worry that the conditions our country live in that mean even the young generation of renters, um, chronic renters, will, if they're given the chance, be bought off very quickly. But we'll see. Anyway, without without Michael Walker, uh, we will cover that in depth next time. Also speaking of Michael Walker, ChatGPT might not be able to replicate him yet, but that doesn't mean the tech titans aren't carrying fear of its powers. An open letter has been published by the Future of Life Institute, a non-profit organisation that, quote, seeks to reduce global catastrophic and existential risk from powerful technologies. The Institute has one central demand. It's causing for a pause on the development of artificial intelligence systems. Here's a little sample of that letter. AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity, as shown by extensive research and acknowledged by top AI labs. As stated in the widely endorsed Lomar AI principles, advanced AI could represent a profound change in the history of life on Earth and should be planned for and managed with consummate care and resources. The letter goes on to say this. Unfortunately, this level of planning and management is not happening, even though recent months have seen AI labs locked in out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. 
Therefore, we call on all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of AI systems more powerful than chat than GPT-4. This pause should be public and verifiable and include all key actors. If such a pause cannot be enacted quickly, government should step in and institute a moratorium. It's a good job I said that right, because I always used to call that a moriatum and be laughed at extensively. I bet chap GPT wouldn't make that mistake. Now, over a thousand tech researchers and experts agree with what's been written in that letter. They have added their signatures to the missive, including Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Also on the letter is Elon Musk. Though it's worth pointing out that Elon Musk may have a little bit of a conflict of interest because just a month ago, the information reported this. Elon Musk has approached artificial intelligence researchers in order to find a new brain. No, they didn't say this. Elon Musk has approached artificial intelligence researchers in recent weeks about forming a new research lab to develop an alternative to ChatGPT, the high-profile chatbot made by the startup OpenAI, according to two people with direct knowledge of the effort and a third person briefed on the conversations. In recent months, Musk has repeatedly criticized OpenAI for installing safeguards that prevent ChatGPT from producing text that might offend users. Musk, who co-founded OpenAI in 2015, but has since cut ties with the startup, suggested last year that OpenAI's technology was an example of training AI to be woke. His comments imply that a rival chatbot would have fewer restrictions on divisive subjects compared to ChatGPT and a related chatbot Microsoft recently launched. If they're managing to train AI to be woke, that would be the first known instance of the algorithms reproducing human non-bias, because it's usually the opposite situation. Now, whatever Musk's intentions, and he's also a massive donor at uh, the Life Future Life Institute, should be noted, um, it cannot be denied that in recent months, AI available for public use has been developing at an astonishing rate. From the launch of ChatGPT to the increased inclusion of predictive AI in products made by the likes of Google, Microsoft, and Adobe, it certainly feels like a new frontier in artificial intelligence. For example, I made it write a limerick about my best friend the other day couldn't do that with my own brain. And it's worrying the bods behind the Future of Life Institute, um, where Musk, as I've said, is their biggest donor. But there's been pushback already. Vice reports this. Emily M. Bender, a professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Washington, and the co-author of the first paper, The Letter Cites, tweeted that this open letter is, quote, dripping with hashtag AI hype, and the letter misuses her research. And then the letter says... AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity, as shown by extensive research, end quote. But Bender counters that her research specifically points to current large language models and their use within oppressive systems, which is much more concrete and pressing than hypothetical future AI. However, at a press conference on Wednesday to launch this letter, three of its leading signatories said that the purpose of the intervention isn't to stop AI technology, but instead they want to give governments and regulators time to understand the risks and mitigate for them. And the reason they need a joint pause is because AI companies say that corporate pressure drives them to, quote, produce market-ready technology too soon in order to beat out the competition. Speaking at the press conference, MIT physics professor Max Tegmark said this. People who work in AI see these risks more clearly. No company has the power to stop this alone. That's why as a company, you want all companies to pause at the same time. A coalition of big tech. Dangerous. Coincidentally, the letter was published the same day that the UK government launched a white paper outlining plans to regulate 
regulate AI. And surprise, surprise, it's taking a light touch and a quo, a quote, pro-innovation approach. When does it not? This means no new legislation at this time, but instead a focus on, quote, empowering regulators to develop another quote, context-specific approaches when deciding how to manage AI usage. I bet the AI would use less jargon than that. In comparison, however, the EU is currently debating the details of its Artificial Intelligence Act. Now, this is pretty massive because it has the potential to be some very hefty legislation. Developers and users of high-risk AI systems, which are like autonomous vehicles, for example, would have to abide by rigorous testing, documentation of protests, and thorough human oversight. And companies that don't do that would face big penalties if the act is passed, with fines of up to 30 million euros or 6% of their global income. Sean, is this Luddite behavior? Do you fear AI? Do you even use AI? I haven't used it and I do fear it. I feel like this is the beginning of every sci-fi film and novel right back to it's giving Mary Shelley, it's giving Frankenstein the the warnings and then the hubris that we won't heed the warnings and then one day AI will out outsmart us, outfox us all. Um yeah, I mean I am I am a little bit concerned by the fact that uh I don't know that this call is not even being sort of heeded um you know, on any level, um, because I think there are some valid concerns about developing technology that might be cleverer than us. Shocker. <laughs> I do think it's quite telling. Uh, a, good, a good approach that I have is if the UK government are for it, right now I'm probably going to be a bit more against it or a bit more questioning of it. And I also think it's worth noting when we talk about things like AI, the people who behind it, what are their visions for the society we're living in? For example, people like Elon Musk, you know, you've got big Apple founders, Google, they all believe in big ideologies that tend, that have massive consequences for the way we live our lives. But no one talks about that. They just think, okay, let's use the products. Anyway, maybe we can get some AI next week to take the heat off me. Thank you so much, Sean Faye, for joining me tonight for this show. Thank you for having me. And sorry for the connection difficulties. <laughs> when we get the AI and it won't matter. Um, and thank you everyone for watching this at home. Michael and Aaron will be back tomorrow to take you through the stories. But for now, I've been Moilo the McLean. You've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support. <laughs>